Well, I'm going to ask you to return to uh, the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 3, so you could open your Bibles to that, please. And as you're turning there, I want you to imagine that you have been on mission with God. God had been stirring in your heart, and you've been looking to your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends at school, and He has given you a burden for them. And so that's led to a season where you've been praying for their souls and praying for opportunities to share the gospel with them. And you've been obedient to those opportunities. And God has worked a miracle in one of your friend's life where they have trusted Christ and they've been born again. And because you understand the Great Commission, you know, you just don't leave them there. So you are entering into a very intentional friendship where you get together with them and you read the Bible and you pray and you you go over what does the Bible say about life. And they've been coming to your Bible study on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock and there you've introduced them to another group of friends and you are encouraging them. And over these months, you have observed some wonderful things take place in their life and you are excited about this. But you've also observed two sinful patterns that are beginning to emerge. The first pattern is that of their words. You notice that they have a tendency to hurt people with their harsh words. In fact, you've thought to yourself, they may have missed their calling here. It might have been that they should have been an attorney because they can out-argue anyone that I've ever seen. And they, they will argue to a point of, of taking those words and slicing people up with them. The second sinful pattern that you've observed in this new Christian's life is that of anger. You've seen them get upset. And you've seen them with their clenched jaw and and raising their voice. In fact, you've had them over to your home. They've seen how you minister to your own family. You've been in their home. And you've seen how they talk to their spouse and to their kids and how they raise their voice. You can see this tendency towards harsh words and sinful anger is a real problem in their life. Well, on one particular afternoon, the afternoon in which you get together and you read the scriptures and you pray and you go through life together, you notice that their shoulders are a bit slumped. And you can look into their eyes and they're a little red and you can tell that they are having an emotional day. And you begin to ask them, tell me about your day. And as they begin to just unpack what their day has been like, they begin to say things like this. You know what? I'm beginning to see how hurtful my words are. My marriage right now is not doing too well. My children and I are not getting along. I'm really harsh towards them. My co-workers, I've noticed that they're keeping their distance from me. And... I just recently have had a few episodes of anger. And, and that's, that's manifested itself in my family. I've raised my voice. I've pounded my fist. I've made threats. I've intimidated. And I'm not even sure I'm going to have a job this next week at this time. I'm, I'm really struggling right now. God is really revealing some of these sins in my life. And then they take their Bible. And, and they... Place it across the table in front of you and say, listen, you're the one who shared the gospel with me. You're the one who's been discipling me. Would you take this book 
And would you, would you tell me what this book has to say about my tongue and about my anger? Would you please show me? I'm really, I'm really hoping that you'd be able to help me today. And you grab their Bible. And where will you turn? What will you say? I wonder what James would say. That's a question we've been asking ourselves over these last five or six weeks, and, and James is going to give us an answer to that very question. Let's look again at James chapter 3. If you were with us last week, you heard a message on the first 12 verses of James 3 that had to do with taming our tongue. We saw the incredible influence that our words have, either for good or for bad. In fact, there was even a word picture provided like our words are like a small flame that can be ignited into a forest fire. James also said that our words are kind of like wild beasts. We can, we can contain a wild beast, but we are unable to tame our tongue. And then if you know the layout of James, James chapter 4 Look at just verse 1 there. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is not this that your passions are at war within you? Don't raise your hand. This is a rhetorical question. But how many of you struggle with anger? You're going to want to be here next Sunday morning. Because that's what James is going to address. Anger. So in the first 12 verses of James 3, he's dealing with someone that has a sharp tongue. And in the first part of James 4, he's going to deal with a person that has a a biting anger. And then right in between are six verses that serve as a bridge, but also serve as a foundation to help us with our tongue and to help us with our anger. So you could grab that Bible from your friend and you say, let's look at James. Let's look at the first 12 verses of James chapter 3 and hear what it has to say about the tongue. Let us look at the first few verses of James chapter 4. And now let's look at verses 13 through 18 of James 3 that helps us with, with understanding how God can help us with our tongue and how God can help us with our anger. So now, with a foundation laid, let's look at chapter 3 verses 13 through 18. Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So may we pray for God to give us understanding of these verses today. God, I believe we have an opportunity this morning to hear some truth that can that can change our families. It can change our marriages and how we relate to our parents and our friends and our siblings, our children. I believe it it can have some truth here that would impact the way we interact with our our co-workers and and those who live next to us. So I would pray now for focus and, 
an understanding of what your word says to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. James is going to indicate to us this morning that our sharp tongue and outburst of angers are tied to a way of life. In order for us to address these behaviors, we have to look closely at what is driving us. James is going to argue that we need to seek and apply God's wisdom to our lives. We need to attain God's wisdom when we humble ourselves and ask him to change us in order to receive this wisdom. So the first thing we do here is we need to, number one, is understand that there are two different wisdoms in play in our life. There's the world's wisdom and there's God's wisdom. So number one, we need to understand and reject the origin, deeds, and result of the world's wisdom. James is going to say there is a wisdom that is natural to us, that we are born with. It's like the air that we breathe. And we have to understand where these sharp words come from and where these fits of anger come from. They are derived from worldly wisdom. So let us take some time here and examine these methods. Kind of like we hope that the Packers have examined the Denver Broncos tape to observe how, what are their tendencies and so that we can do something about that. I'm quite sure that the Badgers were watching some tape of the Wolverines the last couple of weeks and uh, that tape served them well yesterday. So we want to we wanna first reject this origin, deeds, and results of the world's wisdom. So here's a few bullet points here. Where does this worldly wisdom come from? It is derived from a godless culture, a pursuit of self, and is influenced by the devil. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but this wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. There is a wisdom that is natural to man. You'll notice the first word of its origin is the word earthly. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong or right about this word. It just speaks of the earth. But in its context, what James is referring to is this godless world, this system and this culture that we are born into. This worldly wisdom is a byproduct of the world's system. Let me just give you a little a little illustration of this, and we're going to have to go back into history for this a little bit. Consider the Harvard University. In the early 1600s, the University of Harvard was constructed, and it had this motto. This is what this university is going to be about. And they put it in some Latin words. How many of our students know Latin? There's one. All right, good. <laughs> Veritas Christo et Ecclesia. And that, in Latin, translated to English, meant truth. Truth for Christ and the culture. So Harvard was set up to equip the students to understand and apply truth. But that truth is attached to Christ and his word to equip the church. Now, years have passed. Generations have come and gone. And there was a period called the Enlightenment that went through, where the revelation of God's Word has been rejected and under suspicion. And it's been replaced with something called rationalism that says that I'm only going to believe truth that I can see. 
and prove through scientific methods. And that has been reflected in the change of a motto for Harvard. And I can remember as a kid, I used to wear, you know, the Ivy League sweatshirts were really popular. And I had this, this uh, Harvard, it was a maroon sweatshirt, and it said Harvard, and then it just had the, the Greek word, or the Latin word, veritas. Just truth. But you see, what's happened is truth has been detached from Christ and detached from his word. And so now truth is what you make it and how you understand it. And so what has gone on there at Harvard is what has gone on in our culture. The world's wisdom is one of which it is godless. It rejects God, his existence, and it rejects his word. But it is also this pursuit of self. You see the next word here in chapter 3, verse 15. It's not only earthly, but it is unspiritual. This is the natural man. This is the man or the woman that is before they become a Christian. This is them in their fallen state. Paul Tripp, an author and teacher, helps me right now. He says that we are born with this kingdom of self. We are born with this mindset that life will go well for everyone around me as long as they understand that I'm the king or I'm the queen and that you are all my subjects. And and if you will just serve me and follow my ways, we will have no conflict and there will be no harsh words that come from my mouth. But the moment you cross me and my kingdom, then we got problems. So think about this. As a child is brought up, They think they're the king or the queen. I am hungry and I want to be fed now. I have a messy diaper and I want to be changed now. Get me out of this bed and I'm going to let you know what I want out of here now. I'm in this toy aisle and I want that toy and I want it now. And if you don't get it for me, everyone in the store is going to know about it. I want this. You must serve me. And as a child grows older and older, they may have this perspective of chores. Why would I have to do chores? You should be doing chores for me. I'm the king. I'm the queen of this house. And then we can expand that into how we see a life. Why was I born with this body shape? Into this family, with these deficiencies, with this set of friends. Why is it raining today? I'm supposed to be king. I'm supposed to be queen. Nothing is supposed to go contrary to my ways. It's not fair for me to get this. And then just play that out in your marriage. Why doesn't my spouse serve me? Shouldn't my children adore me and bow to my every wish? Why am I surrounded at work with such incompetent people? If only one would just listen to me, especially my boss... Since I am not getting my way, and I am the ruler, it's time for me to start to get a few things off my chest. And let me unleash my words and my anger. This is where this comes from. So you're sitting down across the table from your friend whom you are discipling, and you're saying, listen, this is, this is where that is coming from. It's coming from this wisdom of the world. That's a part of our culture, but it's a part of who you are before you were a Christian as well. 
And the third thing here is it says it is demonic. You see it there in verse 15. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It was Lucifer himself who, who implied, God, I'm not going to worship and serve you anymore. It is time that I be esteemed. It's time for people to worship me. So you have this kingdom here, a kingdom of self. I'm the king. I'm the queen. So play this out. There, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Our wisdom leads to death. What does this world's wisdom produce? Well, it produces jealousy and selfish ambition that we attempt to cover up. Look with me at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So the world's wisdom, where do we get it from? We get it from this world. We get it from our own hearts. We get it from influence by the devil. What does it produce? It produces jealousy and selfish ambition. This is what James is saying. James is saying we compare our kingdoms to others and then we get jealous. His kingdom has more stuff. It is larger. It is more prestigious. And as a result, I don't like him. We can have this ambition, this selfish ambition, where the world's wisdom is all about advancing your own cause and expanding your brand. Others are in competition for your fame. It could be that you see your own family, your own marriage, and your own children as a hindrance to you getting what you want. If your spouse and kids or anyone else gets in your way, they're going to hear about it. This is about you and you seeking to expand your own kingdom. You think they all should be serving you. Imagine a marriage like this, where you have two competing kingdoms warring with one another. Imagine a family of five living like this. Imagine a family vacation in a minivan down to Florida like this, where you have all five in the minivan, and they're all seeking their own kingdom. Have anyone been on a vacation like that? Imagine a church like this, where every single one in the room has their own agenda and says, everyone is going to get along with me just fine as long as you just serve me in my ways in a time that I want you to do it. Play that out a little bit. If you are the king or you are the queen, and no one's going to have any harsh words as long as they submit to your ways, no one's going to have to worry about any anger coming from you as long as they'll just follow you. What happens when you've got a group of people that are all doing that same thing? That's what you call conflict. Well, here's what James says. What will that lead to? Look with me at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Jealousy and selfish ambition yield disorder and a variety of sins. The word disorder could also be translated confusion or instability. This could be a description of your marriage. This could be a description of 
your home right now where everyone is just doing what they want to do and you're the king and no one else is submitting to your ways and so you're letting them have it and you're hurting them with your words. This kind of reminds me of the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? Where there are these people that said to themselves, hey, you know what, let's look at this. And, and, and I'm looking just at Genesis 11 and you don't have to turn there, but if you want, you can. These are people that are looking to make their own kingdom. In verse 4 it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And listen to this, And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they will propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. So you're sitting across the table from your friend. And James right now is equipping you through these verses And he is saying to you, the reason that you struggle with your anger, the reason you struggle with your harsh words, is really a kingdom problem. You think you're king, you think you're queen, and you think that everyone should be serving you. And when they don't, you are letting them have it. And this is leading to disorder. This is leading to confusion within your family, in your workplace, in your circle of friends. This is what he is saying. To us today. You'll notice that it's not only disorder, but the last part of verse 16 says, every vile practice. You're not getting your way, and there's all sorts of evil that is coming out of your life as a result of it. Because this is all about you. This is all about yourself. This is what he is saying. Well, the first strategy to overcoming these harsh words is to understand and reject the origin, deeds, and results of the world's wisdom. The second strategy, then, is to know and apply the origin, deeds, and results of God's wisdom. Here is the great news for us, is we don't have to live like that anymore. God has provided for us an opportunity to live differently. You see, there's true wisdom, and there's a typo in this in your outline, but true wisdom comes from God. True wisdom comes from God, not from the world, not from yourself, or not from the devil. This one comes from God. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 2, 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. God's wisdom is about him advancing his kingdom. He is not concerned about your kingdom. And you cannot have two kingdoms. You're either going to serve God's kingdom or you're going to serve your kingdom. You're going to have to choose. What has pursuing your own kingdom gotten you? What has jealousy and selfish ambition delivered to you? Disorder, confusion, and sinful ways. So why not repent? Why not relinquish your kingdom for God's kingdom? Isn't this topic right here one of the greatest hindrances to us becoming followers of Jesus? 
is that we would have to give up control of our lives? Are you, are you meaning to tell me that if I become a follower of Christ, I'm going to have to give up control and deny myself and to follow Jesus' ways? Yes, exactly, you will. You'll have to take up your cross. Well, how do I tap this wisdom? I'm realizing that my wisdom is is leading me to jealousy, to selfish ambition, to disorder, to all sorts of evil practices. Well, it's about the cross. That's what we've been singing about this morning. And, And I'm in full aware, and Paul was fully aware, that the cross is foolishness to our world. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to all those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So how is it that I reject this world's wisdom and embrace God's wisdom? Through repentance. It's not through a deeper learning, but it's through acknowledging that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for you. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter if it makes sense. It's, it's the truth of God. And when you follow through with the gospel, you'll see that it is perfectly clear and it does make sense. He cares for you enough that instead of you going on the cross, he put his son on the cross. If we would repent and believe in that, we would be saved and we would be able to attain this wisdom that God provides. And this wisdom is about seeking God's kingdom. And so wisdom is available to the humble. Look with me again at verse 13. It starts out this way. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom is tied to meekness or wisdom is tied to humility. This is not a weakness, but if we truly want God's wisdom, there has to be this posture of humility in our life. To say, God, I need you to help me. I don't know how to navigate through this decision or through this season that I have. I have to be a wisdom pursuer. So I enter into a lifestyle of prayer. James 1, 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We need to have a lifestyle of seeking wisdom from his word. Psalm 19, 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So the world's wisdom produces jealousy and selfish ambition. Well, what does God's wisdom produce? Look with me at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. There are seven fruits listed here to a person that is submitting to God's wisdom in their life through prayer and through applying the scriptures in their life. Does that sound familiar at all to anyone, this list of fruits? It sounds like the fruits of the Spirit, doesn't it, in Galatians 5? Now, there's not a lot of similarities in word choices here, but there is in submission and God producing works in your life. 
So I'm not going to spend 20 minutes on each of these, but maybe just 20 seconds. So let's look at the first one of these fruits. It's the word purity. How can you tell if God's wisdom is being applied to your life? Your life exhibits a certain holiness, a distinction from the world. We are born of God. We want to obey and become like his son. The second word, second fruit here is that of peace. Where has man's wisdom led? Well, to jealousy and disorder. God's wisdom leads to harmonious relationships. Because we are not seeking our own kingdom, but we are seeking to advance God's kingdom. I don't know that there's ever been a time, well, maybe, maybe, in 16 years, but very rare is there a tension between my wife and I over a theological matter. We do not have conflict over God's kingdom. We have conflict when she violates my kingdom. You know what I mean? (laughs) We're, We're currently working through a few decisions about furniture. I want this. No, I want this. Don't you? I want this, you know, and that's... Melody's kingdom versus Chad's kingdom stuff. But when we are in alignment to being under God's kingdom, a good word for that is peace. A third word here is gentleness. You see it there? This is one who does not deliberately cause fights. It is one who doesn't compromise on truth, but seeks to maintain peace. This is a person that is open to reason. Man's wisdom is about asserting his or her ways and rightness. God's wisdom is slow to speak and quick to hear. There's a willingness to listen and pray and obey what God reveals. There's mercy. There's another fruit. And the words are full of mercy. This is a person that extends forgiveness to those who have wronged them. The world's wisdom says, you've wronged me. I'm writing you off and I'm declaring war and you're about ready to hear about it. But God's wisdom is about offering mercy. There's good fruits. I mean, if you look back there in verse 13, uh, wisdom provides fruits. You see it, by his or her conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The word good conduct We might think of that as someone that's just straight-laced and just square and just follows all the rules. But the Greek language actually has something to do about loveliness. It's that this person that is submitted to God's wisdom and applying it to their life has such a fragrance of attractiveness, and and I mean that in a very wholesome way, that people are drawn to them. You know, a person that is meek, humble, and is experiencing God's wisdom in their life they do not find it necessary to offer their opinion on everything. Quite the contrary. People actually come to them and ask for their opinion on things. And there's, there's also impartial. That's, a, that's the sixth of the seven fruits. This is world's wisdom may say, I will align, uh, with another, I will align my kingdom with another kingdom only if I can stand something to gain. But God's wisdom says, I will align with all. I I will love and serve all for the cause of Christ. And then there's this word sincere. In in the Greek, it is the word hypocrite with the letter A in front of it. We have this tendency, right? There's typical and there's atypical, right? 
And, and when we put that, for that letter A, it just means the opposite. So it's, a, it's a not a hypocrite. It's one that is trustworthy, one that is consistent in their life. The world's wisdom yields disorder and every vile practice. Well, what does God's wisdom yield? Look with me at the last verse of our passage this morning. It says in verse 18 that God's wisdom of planting peacemaking seeds will yield a harvest of right relationships. Verse 18, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you're sitting across the table from your friend whom you have the privilege of discipling. And they're saying, why in the world am I having all this trouble with my words and with my anger? And you're walking them through the world's wisdom and their selfish ways that that existed before they were a Christian and you're reminding them you're, you're a part of another kingdom. You need to submit to God's kingdom. This is not about you getting your way anymore. And you're examining this is what it looks like. Here's the seven fruits that, that prove that you are walking in God's wisdom. And over the long haul, this is an agricultural metaphor here of planting seeds in a harvest. Over time, we would expect to see a harvest of right relationships within you. You are not imposing your will. You are seeking God's will. You are seeking in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, in your friends, in your relationships with your family members, all about being a part of God's kingdom. And when there is an alignment in your marriage and in your, in your child, children, and they're all seeking under God's kingdom, their seeds of peacemaking are being are sown, they're eventually, the promise of this verse here, is that there will be this harvest of right, wholesome relationships. And if that is true, not only in your family, could it not be true in our church family? Let us have a church like that, where it's not about your kingdom or my kingdom, but it's really only about God's kingdom. You know, there is a tendency of, of marketing to say, here is our target group. We're after the soccer moms. Actually, we're after the guys that are just about ready to retire. Those are whom we are pursuing. And, and churches can take up that same tendency. You want to know what my marketing strategy is? Let's share the gospel with lost people. And let's just see who is out there that we can share the gospel with. I believe, and I'm reading this book, so this idea is not original with me. It's called The, the Compelling Community. It speaks about a healthy church family. And it says, and the point of it is this. Imagine you've got a, a person over here that is a biker. I mean, they come through these double doors, and they've got dirt in their fingernails, and they smell like Quaker State. I mean, they've they, they got long hair, and they've got tattoos everywhere. And across the aisle is this young lady that's had manicures and pedicures, and I don't even know what that stuff means, but it, it's stuff that they're the exact opposite. And instead of smelling like Quaker State, they have this really fine perfume, and they really have it all put together. And during the greeting time, before service or after service, these two embrace one another. And they have a sense of unity among each other. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of the gospel. It is the only thing they have in common. And loved ones, it's the only thing they need to have in common. And then you've got some guests that come to the church and they're sitting four or five rows back. And they're saying, what makes that possible? 
There is nothing humanly logical that would explain that. And that's the whole point. So we don't need a church full of homeschool families or a church full of soccer moms or, or, or young professionals or, uh, or retired people. Let, let's just have a church where we're all prioritizing Jesus and the gospel. And we're all prioritizing God's kingdom and not our own. And let us focus on planting these seeds of peacemaking in our families and with one another. And let the gospel be on display in our life. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the vision. That's not my vision. That's James' vision here of James chapter 3 for us. But you're going to have to humble yourself. I'm going to have to humble myself. And as you're hearing this morning about two kingdoms at war with one another, is God revealing that you've been pursuing your own kingdom? Is that the cause of wars? Is that the cause of your harsh words? What do you think you ought to do about that? How about before you leave here today, you get that right with God? How about you pause right where you're at and you acknowledge that you've been about your kingdom and repent and ask God to forgive you? And then turn over the deeds of that kingdom to him and say, I don't want to be about my kingdom anymore. I want to be about your kingdom. Remember, he's speaking here to believers. But this is also a message to those who have yet to believe. Put your faith in Christ that Jesus has died on the cross for you. I'm going to give you some time to just think and pray and allow you to take this message and apply it to your heart right now. So once you bow, once you think through this and allow this seed to find good soil in your heart. I'm so grateful, our Father, that you don't just identify sin in our life like our tongue that, that create forest fires in our families, in our workplaces, in our circle of uh, friends. But you give us solutions. You don't just talk about how we have these raging anger within us. But you say, this, this is a deeper problem than you just flying off. Rather, this is a wisdom issue for you. This is a heart matter for you. You've been seeking your own self. You, you've, been, you've been looking like people of the world. You think you're king. and You think you're queen. Oh, Lord, do a work in our hearts. Do a supernatural work of brokenness over this. Bring humility in our lives, not not just for the next five minutes, but a life of humility and saying, God, I need, I need you. I need you to help me in every area of my life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to experience a church like this where there are so many people that are planting seeds of peacemaking that there would be this ongoing harvest of righteousness. And there would be people here that they only have one thing in common, and it's Jesus. And they would be 
great friends because of that. Thank you for the diversity. Thank you for those from different ethnic groups and different age groups. And may that not divide us, but may we celebrate that and lean into that and and just say that, that actually points out how wonderful the gospel is. Is that someone that's so much different than me we can love each other through that. Yes, Lord, may we be about your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.